Our guest today is Elena Litkina-Botello. She's a partner at GH Smart, and we're going to talk to her about leadership. Elena, thank you so much for joining us at Knowledge at Wharton today. Thank you, Mukul. Thanks for having me here. Uh, before we talk about your research uh, on the CEO Genome Project, about which I want to hear everything, uh, how did you get interested in leadership? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> so I was 14 years old, um, and I just noticed that uh, my lots of people around me were coming to me for advice, and that was my first epiphany that really what I love doing in my life is helping people, helping be, be, people be successful at whatever they do. Uh, and then I had to send money back home, so I became an accountant when I came to the U.S., and then I went to Wharton. And so, of course, with Wharton, you want to do something really worthy with your time, so I went to McKinsey & Company. Uh, and then I realized that, you know, while I've changed, kind of what I'm really passionate about hasn't changed since I was 14, which is my best moments at McKinsey. We're really sitting across, like we're sitting here from... Anybody, it didn't matter if they were a CEO or anybody in the organization, just feeling like in some way that conversation helped them be more successful. And so that brought me to GH Smart, where you know we're really blessed to have a unique job that I never knew existed, actually, until I joined the firm, um, which is all we do is we help leaders be more successful. Uh, and then as I kind of went on that journey, uh, it became pretty clear that um, while leadership overall is a really big topic, there are a couple of big pivot points or big pivot topics within that topic that really, kind of, if you can get those decisions right, a lot of things flow from that, which is how we got to the CEO genome. So let's talk a little bit about the CEO genome project. And what are those couple of pivot points that you mentioned? And what was your objective and what was your purpose in, in doing what you did? Yeah, you know, so as a firm, we've been helping CEOs and helping boards and investors select CEOs since 1995. And so we've always been kind of behind the scenes helping our clients make that decision. Um, what really shocked me was I, kind of, I, I gradually had this awareness built in me that when I look at the pages of, you know, Wall Street Journal or, you know, Forbes or any, any publication out there, and then I really think about who I spend my time with, counseling and advising CEOs and boards. I realized that, boy, you know, the CEO that stares at you from the front pages of our, you know, publications or very well-respected publications and CEOs I get to see up close and personal are just two very different pictures. Mm -hmm. And coming from a family of mathematicians, whenever something is unsettling, you know, I figure, well, we need to get some good data around this. Uh, and so that's how CEO Genome Project was born. It was really a desire to say, well, let's look behind the scenes. Let's really understand what drives performance, what do successful CEOs look like up close and personal, and do that not using anecdote or not over-relying on any kind of particular um, empirical experience, but really digging into the data and research. And what did the data show? So the data was fascinating. Uh, we embarked on the research. We weren't fishing for any particular hypothesis to prove or disprove it. Uh, and so we were really open-minded to see what we find. And we applied a multitude of analytical approaches. Um, and what we found in terms of what didn't matter, frankly, surprised us as much as what we found of what did matter. So for example, you know, the one kind of big point that stared us in the face is that the this kind of stereotypical, larger-than-life, charismatic CEO 
who is, you know, never makes mistakes and is probably the smartest person in the room and, you know, rides in and out on a white horse with, you know, perfect unblemished record, really only exists in kind of urban legend, right? And that, you know, I've since then come to realize that really the only perfect CEOs I know are the ones who I don't know. And that any CEO, no matter how lustrous, no matter how successful, when you look back in, in hindsight, They've all come into the role not prepared. So that's one thing we've learned is whenever we advise the board, we've yet to find a board that feels that, you know, this individual is a slam dunk. It's a tough decision deciding who will get the role. So they look imperfect getting into the role. They look imperfect for much of the role. Uh, and very few uh, kind of uh, aspects of this, you know, big uh, public stereotype that we have prove that to matter. So things, for example... You know, if you looked at the publicly available bios of Fortune 500 CEOs, you've probably seen some research out there is, gosh, if you didn't go to the right preschool, let alone the, light, the right university, you're doomed. You're doomed to failure. Well, it's interesting because in our data set, we have the luxury of looking well beyond Fortune 500. The companies in our data set, it's over 2,000 CEOs and over 18,000 uh, executives that we've assessed. And it's, it includes folks anywhere from Fortune 100 companies to $100 million companies or 100-person person company. And so what we found is actually in our data set, only 7% of the executives um, had Ivy League college education. 8% of the executives didn't graduate from college at all. And in final analysis, it didn't actually their, – their educational pedigree didn't really impact their performance. Why, why is that? What, what, what's, what's your explanation? Well, you know, I think so kind of our philosophy as a firm is that it's really all about the fit to the role. So it's not so much about – people don't walk around as – you know, I'm sure you've heard this term of, you know, he's just a great general athlete, right? Yes. In practicality, whether or not someone will succeed in a specific situation depends on the context, depends on how well their skill sets are matched to the, what the job really requires, much more so than kind of on this theoretical set of, uh, you know, perfection competencies, if you will, that, that you might imagine. Um, the other big overarching theme that really stared us in the face when we dug into the data is that it's really much more about what you do and what your behaviors are and things that you'd skills and abilities that you develop in your life as opposed to traits that you happen to be born in, into, either traits or access, right? Because to a large degree, as much as you know, we'd like to believe that uh, great education is available to everyone, having an undergraduate degree from an Ivy League school is as much a signal of access as it is a signal of lots of other things, right? And so what we found... That's just one example of findings, but other findings in the study is that, yes, it helps to have a head start in some areas, but at the end of the day, what really matters is kind of what you do with what you were you given. So let's let let's drill a little deeper into those behaviors. And uh, what I found interesting about your study is that you identified four specific behaviors mm -hmm. that the CEOs who are successful do differently than those who may seem successful on the surface, but eventually are not that successful. Exactly. Could we talk one after the other about those four behavioral uh, uh, qualities uh, and, and, and see how they make a difference? The first one, if I remember right, was that you found that the CEOs are very decisive. Exactly. Exactly. Tell us a little bit more about that. So what surprised us there, right, is we expected that we looked at quality of decision making, right, and we expected that CEOs just make better decisions. Right? By the time they get to the top and when they get selected, it must be that they just have this uncanny insight that the rest of us don't share. 
What we were shocked to find out is that decisiveness does, in fact, relate to performance. Um, but it's actually more frequent that CEOs stand out for the speed of their decision making, not simply the quality. Um, and so what was interesting, you know, just recently you may have seen Jeff Bezos um, shared his shareholder letter. His shareholder letter could be kind of a primer on all of the four CEO behaviors. And on decision making, he specifically talks about the fact that decision making is quality times velocity and that he calls them day two companies, companies that, you know, probably have been and still are very successful, but ultimately are not as dynamic, are not moving forward and not shaping the industries where they're in. Um, he talks about those day two companies as being making high quality decisions, but too slowly. Mm -hmm. And he sets his aspiration for Amazon to always remain a day one company or being a disruptor, if you will, right, as a company that makes good decisions and makes them very quickly. And so what we find is um, as you look at the executives even coming up through the ranks, you could see folks differentiate themselves on decisiveness at different stages in their career, and CEOs stand out for being willing to make a decision. I wonder if uh, you think there are any exceptions to that, and I'll, I'll tell you why I'm asking that. Sure. Uh, I remember this is maybe about 20 years ago. I remember interviewing the CEO of a very large multinational consulting firm, and I was talking to him about how he makes decisions. And his response was that sometimes he makes decisions quickly, mm -hmm. and at other times, he just doesn't make decisions for a very, very mm -hmm. long time. Mm -hmm. and, and for the second category of decisions, very often just by not making the decision, the need to make the decision goes away. Mm -hmm. Did, did mm -hmm. you find that in your study as well? Yeah, Mukul, it's really, it's, it's a great uh, build on this behavior topic. Yes, so what we find is that um, and look, if the results of the study were published to CEOs only, then the message probably would be, number one, think about which decisions shouldn't even land on your desk. So very successful CEOs are very careful. Um, a lot of them will share that, look, in a given year, I'll make three to four big decisions, right? right? And so the first question would be, make sure that you don't have too many decisions because something's got to be wrong with your team if there are too many decisions that you feel you're the only right person to make. So that would be one. And the second insights for CEOs only would be that kind of be thoughtful about applying the right time to make a decision, the right kind of thoroughness and thoughtfulness to a decision at hand, right, depending on the type of decision. Certainly if you're betting the company, right, right. you will be really thoughtful. Um, this study is really aimed to be helpful to a really broad audience, regardless of their stage in their career. And this is where what we really focused on is decisiveness, simply because when we look at what separates those that actually get into the CEO's shoes and become successful from those who could look like on the face of it, they may have all the same capabilities, it tends to be the speed that's the gating factor. Mm -hmm. So if that if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's really interesting. Um, thank you for- So when in doubt, I would say for most of us, when in doubt, if you sense and if you have a sense in your gut that you kind of know the right way to go, that's probably the right the, the right answer. Now, if you're a CEO, CEOs do tend to be more decisive. So in that case, maybe it, it is very um, very prudent to be thoughtful and make sure you're getting, getting different points of view. Great. Thank, thank you for clarifying that. That's, that sounds really very, very interesting. Uh, the second trait <clears throat> that you talked about was that they are relentlessly reliable. Uh, Isn't that interesting? Explain what, what do you, uh, why does that matter so much? 
So reliability um, caused all sorts of debate on our research team, uh, mainly because it's, um, you know, all of these behaviors seem pretty obvious. Reliability was you know, kind of annoyingly obvious, right? It was, you know, plain as milk toast. And, and it was, you know, we found ourselves resisting even putting it there, out there because it was so basic. And yet reliability turned out to be, have a very significant uh, statistical significance for performance. And actually of the four behaviors, Reliability is the only one that's statistically associated with greater likelihood of getting hired. Mm -hmm. So demonstrating reliability leads you to be more likely to get into the job, uh, as well as to perform well in it. How, how can leaders learn to be more reliable? Right. Great question. And actually, there, I'll share an anecdote, if I may. Of so uh, in addition to the article, because we've got you know, great reception for the article, lots of folks wanted to, you know, found this really useful. So on our website, uh, ceogenome.com, we actually have a self-assessment on these behaviors. Right. And so we had 4,000 folks of all walks of life curious enough to see how they stack up against CEOs and against the peer group. So they took the assessment. And among those was you know, one individual who is a uh, founder and a CEO of a major, major company, one of the most successful in his industry. He took the test and he called one of my partners that's been working with him and said, um, you know, this is great. And, you know, I've excelled on these following areas, but it looks like I need to improve on my reliability and let's get working at it. And so that caused a really good conversation because clearly even somebody who's been tremendously successful, who is among the absolute best in his field, had a really fundamental behavior that he felt he wanted to improve upon. Now, also knowing that individual, uh, probably getting anything less than 100 would have been an insult to him. So he, which much, much like many of the Wharton graduates, I'm sure. And so what reliability really comes down to, and if you had to ask yourself, well, geez, all of these sound great, but how do I actually learn? Um, what, what we think about when we think about reliability is really three things. Number one is the mindset. Number two is the people. And number three is the kind of the processes and the cadence and the drumbeat of the company. The good news is that really of these three things, there's only one that the CEO has to carry in his own brain. Right. Right. Uh, and that what we find with CEOs who are highly reliable is that they want to be counted on. It's not that they're willing to take responsibility. When they see things kind of going off course or when they see an opportunities in front of them, they kind of almost have a desperate hunger to be counted on and actually pull things together. And interestingly, it shows up pretty early in life sometimes. So, you know, one example, I was uh, assessing a CEO candidate for a board, and he shared a story from when he was 16 years old. And he was living in California. His parents left him on the farm in California alone, and a fire broke out, as it happens in California. And so I don't know if you remember yourself at 16. <laughs> If you try I to do. imagine the course of action you would take if you're kind right. of, you know, under a threat, right, a pretty physical threat. So what he did is he led the horses out of the barn. Then he took care of the chickens and loaded them in the truck. And then he did a bunch of other things that were kind of aimed to minimize damage. Then he got into the pickup truck, drove away 100 miles, and then he called his parents. When I think about myself in that situation, I probably, I, I'm hoping back in 16, I would have had the presence to call 911 before my mom, but it would be a toss up, right? And so it's just one of those examples where this, and you know, that mindset of accountability, and if, you know, if we ask ourselves, think about kind of the most reliable people in your life. They don't need to be brilliant leaders, but we all know who they are. And so that has to come from the CEO because that sets the tone for the whole organization. But for those of us who are disorganized and, you know, don't think of ourselves as terrific, quote-unquote, managers, there are a lot of other pieces of reliability that you don't need to do yourself as a CEO. And in fact, so those are the other two pieces. You've got to surround yourself with people that have complementary skill sets, and you've got to let them do their job, 
right? Um, you have to let them build the reliability into the company and be willing to kind of be part of that reliability. And then the rest of it is processes, routines, and the cadences. Um, kind of a lot of reliable companies feel a little bit more like a marching jazz band, uh, marching marching uh, band, if you will, than you know uh, uh, improvisation of talented musicians. What, what did you learn about the connection between reliability and trust? Oh, that's a great, great, great question. Yes. The answer is absolutely. Uh, trust is one of the reasons why reliability is so important in a leader, and those two pieces go hand in hand. Yes, absolutely. Here's another reliability hack that actually anybody can use. So if you are interested in uh, improving your reliability, here's something that's really simple. What we also found when we looked at the CEOs up close and personal, the CEOs who are regarded and viewed as highly reliable, is that they're masters at setting expectations. Mm. And so reliability doesn't start when you start executing. Reliability actually starts when you walk in and you understand what everybody expects of you and you align your stakeholders towards expectations that are realistic right. given what the situation presents you with. That, that's, a, that's a great point. I'm very glad you mentioned that. So you have an opportunity to, be, to set the stage for reliability very, very early in any undertaking you take on. So that actually leads to a very <clears throat> logical uh, transition to the third attribute you found, which is that uh, people who are rel reliable also are great at managing relationships. In fact, you call them masters at relationships. How does that factor into the success of CEOs? Absolutely. Well, so being a CEO or being a leader of any kind is a team sport, yeah. right? You're only a leader if you can get others to follow and you know bring the whole business or the whole uh, initiative that you are leading to success, right? And so what we found that was really interesting is how successful CEOs relate, if you will, um, was, was there was actually really something special in it. And what they do, kind of the best analogy that I can offer is that of an orchestra conductor. Um, and what I'm told, so I'm not a musician myself, but what I'm told is that a good orchestra conductor, number one, they obviously understand the score. They understand the intention and they have a point of view and a vision for how they want to interpret the music. Number two, they really have a keen understanding of the musical instruments and the participants in the orchestra, both in terms of what their role is in that score and performing that to life, bringing that to life, and also what motivates them. You know, how, you know, they will know that the first violin had, that, you know, her cat died that day. And so while it may sound you know, lighthearted, it's actually a really big deal for her. And so they're really tuned in to the vision of what they're trying to bring to life, and they're really tuned in to each individual who is sitting around there and creating the music. And then when all of that comes together, the good conductor, all of his engagement with the, um, with the instruments, with his performers, with his musicians, who often may be more talented musicians than he or she is, is really all in service of that vision. It's all in service of producing a piece of music that nobody in that room individually could have produced on their own. And so that's what we call relate for impact. Mm -hmm. So it's easy to describe what it's not. What it's not is it's not relating for affinity, meaning I'm here to be liked, I'm here to be beloved by the musician or by the audience, mm -hmm. because that's much easier, actually. Mm -hmm. It's also not, I'm not here to, you know, hammer and beat, beat the living hell out of, my, out of my musicians because I know they won't perform the best piece of music. And so CEOs who are successful at engaging for impact always hold in mind kind of the purpose of what they're here for and tune into their stakeholders to deliver that purpose. How do they manage that balance, though, between those two extremes that you just described? 
You know, it's it's a really great question. So I think it's for some, it comes more naturally than for others. I find that they are um, they do two things particularly well when for folks that kind of that always work at it. Right? Is one again, it's back to clarity of purpose and clarity of intent. Uh, and it doesn't need to be purpose with a big P, right? There's a lot of dialogue around kind of the high-minded purpose. The purpose could be as simple as, you know, in this business relationship, here's what our intent is. But they're really clear about what that is. And number two is they're voracious feedback consumers. So they're constantly watching to see the feedback that the audience gives them, the feedback that they get from their musicians, and they're constantly evolving and responding. Um, one of the CEOs that that we've worked with, uh, Tom Monahan, Tom uh led successfully a company called Corporate Executive Board, grew to a billion dollars, and recently sold it to Gartner. And Tom had a great way to frame a job of a CEO. Mm -hmm. And he said, look, you know, I've got three groups of stakeholders, uh, my shareholders, my customers, and my employees. Mm -hmm. And if I were to really fully satisfy either one of them, we'd be bankrupt. And so as a CEO, my job is to keep them all constructively dissatisfied in the name of making the enterprise successful right. so that the enterprise can deliver to them all. What does he and mean so by constructively dissatisfied? Isn't that interesting? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I found that fascinating so. kind of how he framed it, that he didn't say my job is to satisfy all of them. My job is to keep them all constructively dissatisfied so I can bring the whole enterprise forward successfully and then deliver for all of them, right? And I think it's really that. It's that he's not thinking, or a successful CEO is not thinking about how do I please my audience. Yeah. They truly think about how do I take whatever the cause may be. And again, you don't need to be CEO. The cause could be having a good family or a cause could be, you know, in this particular initiative that you're given. And how do I bring everybody forward towards that cause? even if at times they're not going to be happy with what it feels like day to day. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I want to come back to that after we talk about the fourth attribute, and that is uh, they are fast learners. Adapt, they, right. They Being adapt adapted. very quickly yeah. to changing circumstances. Why, why uh, and how is that uh, important? So I think if there is any behavior that is growing in its importance and is getting the kind of the most airtime, if you will, in the boardroom these days. It's this adaptability. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you write a lot about innovation. Knowledge at Borden has a lot of kind of uh, knowledge in that area. I don't know a single board of a company or a single set of investors that aren't talking about how the world is speeding up, how there's a greater degree of uncertainty in the world, and how important it is in that uncertainty environment and environment of change and constant surprises, right? You don't have to kind of go too far for this to be able to still position the business for success and to remain vibrant and, and viable. So adaptability is on the rise as a, as a key CEO behavior. Now you, you did the study over a really long period of time, uh, and I'm sure it was pretty global in its, in its character. Uh, were there any cultural factors that, that played into the way in which these behaviors played out? So Mokul, yes. So we would love to do kind of additional explorations of that factor, and we're still the research is still developing. Uh, Fifteen percent of our data set are CEOs of companies that are not U.S. companies. Mm -hmm. A greater percentage of the data are CEOs who are not U.S.-born CEOs, and so uh, there's certainly a representation. And I think we have an opportunity to um, to dig into it deeper and uh, and explore it further. Well, I was the, the specific point that I was thinking about is. I wonder if your data showed whether some cultures are more relationship-oriented and That's others right. are more contract-oriented. Absolutely. Because I see that conflict Absolutely. in, in, in uh, leadership roles all the time, where some, some, some people 
will change a contract if it preserves a key relationship, mm -hmm. whereas others will let a relationship go if it doesn't stick to the contract. Exactly. Uh, how, how, how did you navigate this divide? Mokul, I think that's a brilliant, brilliant call out. Yes. So if I had a hypothesis, right, I would say that these behaviors hold across cultures, but what great looks like will probably be very cultural. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you one example that's very simple and close to home. So in uh, 1998, I was a, a graduate. I was um, between my first and second year at Wharton, and I went to do half of my internship was at BCG in London, and the other half was going to be in Russia, right. working for a private equity fund. Right. And I was very conscious that when I go to Russia, I shouldn't be smiling too much because in Russia, people smile for two reasons. They're either flirting or something is funny, or if not, then you're an idiot, basically. <laughs> Whereas in the U.S., the social message you're conveying, conveying by smiling is just that I'm okay, you're okay, we're enjoying our conversation, and we're trustworthy partners, right? It's part of social lubricant, if you will. And so this is a very trivial example, but just goes to, to your broader point around what great looks like could be very cultural. Also, the value that a culture places on a behavior um, will be really different. For, I think in our culture, we really, uh, adaptability, again, is a behavior that we really value. We're a country of, you know, many of us are first-generation immigrants, or if right. not, have immigrant roots, right? right, right it's right. adapt or die, <laughs> often in that case, right? <laughs> right. But in more established place, um, uh, countries, or in countries that have kind of roots with a more established population, reliability might be that much more important. Um, so I think this is actually definitely uh, a very fertile area for further exploration. Uh, just the last couple of questions. Uh, so you worked on this uh, uh, CEO genome study for a decade or more. Uh, of all the leaders that you encountered, did any one person sort of stick in your mind as the sort of the, the top person? Oh, gosh. Uh, I know it may be yeah, hard to question. identify yeah. just one, but if I were to ask you, you know, just to sort of push you a little bit and say, tell me who 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 struck you most deeply as as the most impressive leader you encountered, who who embodied some of the things that you found in your study, who would that be and why? Gosh, you know, it's a it. It's a good question. I tend to think of it almost by behavior. Mm -hmm. So as we're developing. So, a lot of this research will feed into a book that we'll have coming out next year. And so, uh, you know, first part of the book is all about these behaviors. And every behavior, we kind of, we think of a handful of CEOs and we pushed ourselves to say, okay, well, the data is nice, but who really embodies that behavior? And so in each individual behavior, we have kind of our masters or our black belts, if you will, of these different behaviors. At the same time, I'll tell you, you know, I've been very fortunate. I feel blessed to have had an opportunity to be around several CEOs that I really admire and that have been very, very successful. And I'll tell you, none of them are equally good at any of these four, at, at all of these four, right? And and each of them will will be able to really shine on, on probably a couple of them. So that's what we're finding in the data is that um, having strength in two is typically seems to be the sweet spot and then having awareness around the others. Uh, I can talk about a CEO here in town, actually, that's okay. somebody that uh, you, you and your audience may know very well. So Madeline Bell, has been leading CHOP, right. uh, and Madeline's, so I think what's you know special about her, among many other things, uh, we often, it's very easy to think when you look at these behaviors, some things seem on the face of it very mutually exclusive or contradictory to each other. Well, gee, if I'm really decisive and I'm really fast to move, how am I also relating for impact? Mm -hmm. 
if I'm really decisive, how am I also adaptable, for example? Or if I'm really adaptable, how am I also reliable? Um, and so I'm always curious about leaders who seem to combine behaviors that on the face of it seem to be hard to combine. And so if you talk to folks around Madeline, um, what you'll hear is that she's somebody who really stands out for her ability to relate for impact uh, and really build trust in, in the multitude of stakeholders. Uh, and at the same time, somebody who is very decisive. And obviously, reliability is a core fundamental organizational capability for CHOP, right? Because they're saving kids' lives every day. And so reliability is really essential. Um, I will tell you, actually, something that I do. While I, I'm, I'm struggling to come up with one CEO that's a master of all four, because I think we're all masters <laughs> of different things, I can tell you one behavior that if you were to really raise your game on across all four behaviors, one simple thing you can do that will help you on all four. Okay. That'd be useful. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And so if you look at kind of the underlying muscle building, right, and how do you raise your game at all four, I think the biggest fertile area for that is mistakes. We're so used in business, yes. and look, even our research, right, what are we talking about? We're talking about who are the most successful CEOs, and what comes to mind is, you know, Olympic list of accomplishments. The reality is the most successful CEOs that are really strong at these behaviors are fantastic at mining their mistakes for learnings for themselves and for the organization. And so if I had to think about kind of an underutilized asset in business, it's mistakes. And really digging into them and, and figuring out, well, how do I become more reliable, right? Another point in reliability that's interesting. Every organization I know where reliability is a matter of life or death, right? So we can talk about reliability. CHOP, it's a matter of life or death. If you're in the Navy SEALs, it's a matter of life or death. All these organizations are obsessive about mistakes. There's a cult of actually finding these mistakes. So Madeline at CHOP introduced a program called Great Catch. Mm -hmm. as a way to celebrate people and, and encourage them and open the doors to the fact that mistake is not an indictment of perfectionism, right? right. Because excellent organizations often struggle with mistakes yeah. because yeah. we expect ourselves to be so perfect, right? right? And so she found a very kind of lighthearted in some ways but really, really profound way to say, great catch. It's all our jobs to job to it's the job of all of us to find mistakes. And so I would kind of encourage all of us to go on a you know personal great catch <laughs> program, if you will, because I think that's a route to improving your behavior on every one of them. That's 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 wonderful. Thank you. And and I'll have just sort of one last question that echoes something you brought up earlier, which is how would the principles that you have learned be applicable to leaders who are not CEOs? Uh, people at every level of society who just want to be better leaders in their own sphere, whether it's a high school teacher or a high school principal or, you know, a, a leader of a nonprofit, uh, at every level where leadership plays a role, how could some of your findings be relevant to them? You know, this is probably one thing that makes me most excited about our research. So it's exciting to dispel the myths about CEOs and help boards be better at picking the right CEOs. It's really exciting to see that it can actually change lives for the better, no matter what you do, to your point, whether you happen to be a principal or if you just want to have a good family. Um, and what we found is that, um, number one, it's never too early or too late to apply these behaviors, right? As I've shared with you earlier, we have examples of struggles and examples of real victories at any stage in one's career, whether you're a really successful CEO or you're just a kid graduating from high school or anything in between. Um, and we've also found a tremendous amount of feedback, actually, I've gotten since the article came out about how much those behaviors have helped individuals just in their daily lives. Um, and so we're really encouraged by that. 
Lena, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton today. Thank you for having me. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.